Well, Merry Christmas. Thank you all for that. It is great to see you this morning. I was doing an unofficial survey before the service began, just walking around talking to people, and I noticed that there was consensus in what was being shared, and everybody was talking about how much they ate for Christmas. But do you know what I did not hear consensus on? Not a single person said, I got three helpings of Brussels sprouts yesterday. Got an extra round of green bean casserole. There was none of that going on. It was nothing but sweets. So the first you know, like series of 2022 is going to be how to get healthy with God. So, all right. So we have been in a series entitled Wonder, and we are studying four words most often associated with Christmas. Those words are peace, love, hope, and joy. And we're studying the words, their connection with Christmas, their implications on daily life, and how it is when you move past redemption, past the salvific sense of why Christ came, how it is that all of these words find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, and they're not supposed to be set aside just for the Christmas season. So we've covered peace and love, and today we're going to finish with hope and joy. I will dedicate the first part of the message to hope. The second part of the message will go to joy. So last week, I began with a question. How would the Bible change if the word love were removed? How would the Bible change if the word love were removed? Well, today I want to start with a different question. Can you imagine life without hope? Think about that for just a moment. Can you imagine life without hope, without any thought of hope, without any idea that tomorrow could be better than today? Could you imagine life without hope? Imagine reading the news, whatever your preferred news outlet might be, with all of the evil, the injustice, the pain, the war, the illness, the problems, and not being able to temper those headlines with the sovereignty of God, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the hope of an eternity with God in heaven. Imagine for just a moment walking through the hard moments of life. It could be different for different people, relational problems, it could be work problems, it could be stress, it could be financial crisis, illness, whatever those are. Imagine walking through those moments without being able to hold on to this passage from Scripture. God works all things together for good. Imagine walking through it saying, I don't know if this could ever be good on the other side. Imagine watching a loved one die without the hope of ever seeing that person again. Imagine for just a moment a person who is struggling with addiction without the hope that tomorrow they might be free. The idea of living in a world without hope, where things never get better, where pain is permanent and failure is final, living in a world like that crushes the soul. It's overwhelming. Hope is not just a nice thing to have. Hope is an essential part of the human experience. We need to have hope in order to keep moving forward. So this next statement, it might sound a little bit over the top, but I want you to just chew on it for a moment. It's key thought. It's in your notes. There is no ultimate hope apart from God. There is no appropriated hope apart from Christ. There's no ultimate hope. Here's what I mean by that. Ultimate hope rests in the reality that life extends beyond the grave, that God has a plan on the other side, that somehow 
If in this world things are not made right, there is hope in the knowledge that God is there, God is sovereign, God is just, God is righteous, and he will make things right. If not in time, it'll be right in eternity. We, we need that hope. So 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or those who are dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. At one point, King Solomon, he was exploring what life would be like if everything ended at death. And he became so overwhelmed with the idea that all of his wealth and his possessions would go to someone else, that all of his striving to accomplish would die with him, that his fame and his honor would soon be forgotten. And finally, he gets to the very end of that, and he declares, it's all vanity. It's, it's worthless. It has no meaning. He even goes on to say, eat and drink for tomorrow you die. In other words, if all that there is is this world and this time, then just make the most of it you possibly can because when you die, it's the end. But you know, that's not how the story ends in Scripture. So here's the second of our statements. There is no appropriated hope apart from Christ. So if ultimate hope extends beyond the grave with God, then we gain that hope. We appropriate that hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.12, it says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. And then he describes what it looks like to be separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Ultimate hope is there because of God. Appropriated hope comes with Christ. So today we're going to follow this same pattern that we've been working through in multiple weeks. And that is we're going to ask three questions of each of these words. What was expected? What was revealed? Why does it matter? And here's the connection that we're going to make by the time this morning's message is done. The fullness of our hope is directly linked to the depth of our joy in Christ. The fullness of your hope is directly linked to the depth of your joy. So let's find out how that works together. I'm going to invite you to go with me in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter 9 will be in verses 1 through 7. I am speaking this morning on the subject of hope and joy. So as you find your place in the text, and we're going to come back and read that text in about 10, maybe 15 minutes, but as you find your place in the text, I'm going to ask you to pray with me about what's happening starting next week and moving throughout the month of January. Starting the month of January, we're going to be casting vision for where is God leading this church for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years and beyond. For the last six months, I have been praying and asking God, give me eyes to see what you're doing here. Because ultimately, our goal is not to create a vision apart from what God is doing, but to see where God is at work and join him in that activity. So as I've been praying, I've just been writing thoughts down, processing pieces with God. I'm going to ask you, if you would, join me in prayer. There's a lot that's going to be riding on the next several weeks that things are clear, things are concise, things are God-honoring, they are biblical, kingdom-oriented, all of those pieces. So join me in prayer on that. It's going to be an incredible, incredible month starting this next week. So let's go to God in prayer for this morning's message and move forward from there. 
Heavenly Father, we are thankful today that we can have hope and joy because of what Jesus has done for us. We ask today that we finish this year strong, that we don't run into next year without finishing what you've already started here. So Lord, sink us in deep right now into the concepts of hope and joy. There's a lot of people that might be in the room right now that God, they are struggling to find the next ray of hope. They are struggling in their circumstances to find any amount of joy. God, meet with us at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So in order for us to really understand the biblical concept of hope and how it is connected to Christ, we need to take a moment and set up the story. So if you were to go into the Old Testament, you would find that the story of the Old Testament is a story of frustrated hope. Let me see your hands if you've been frustrated with some hope. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. There, there's those moments where it seems like everything is going the right direction and hope is building and hope is building and hope is building and all of a sudden the bottom falls out and you find yourself back to the same place. And then there's another glimmer of hope and you're like, all right, it's coming, it's coming. And then all of a sudden hope is dropped out again. If you've been through that back and forth tension of frustrated hope, you understand the storyline of the Old Testament. So I want you to see how this was worked into the coming of Messiah. So the opening chapters of Genesis, we find that humanity is created in the image of God. That's hopeful. That's solid. That's exciting. Very next chapter, sin enters the equation and we get kicked out of paradise. Hope takes a nosedive. But hey, with the eviction notice came a promise from God that one of Eve's children would be a deliverer that would crush the enemy. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So okay, it started hopeful, problem hits, but a promise is given. There is a deliverer who is coming. So Eve gets pregnant. Could this be the deliverer? Does anybody remember Eve's first child? His name was Cain. He was not the deliverer. He kills his brother Abel. Sin gets worse. Hope takes another nosedive. Then you get into the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Lots of descendants are born. Maybe the deliverer will be in this group. So we're just going to have to hope and wait and see. But if you look at the subheading for chapter 6 in most Bibles, here's what it reads. The corruption of mankind. That's not good for hope. So God sends a flood. He kills virtually everyone and everything with the exception of Noah and some of his family and some animals. Now, could it possibly be that Noah is this deliverer? I mean, he found favor in God's sight. He's a stand-up guy. The brother's got a great work ethic, determined, 120 years on one ark. Family seems to be intact. Things are going great. But if you all will remember, hope was short-lived. Noah didn't even get the ark in park before he ties one on and decides to hang out naked in his tent at nighttime. So his kids sin, their kids sin, and the problem just continues to get worse. 
So then Abraham enters the storyline, and there's another glimpse of hope because God promises Abraham the land, the seed, and the blessing. Track it through the Old Testament. The land, the seed, and the blessing. It's a new day. There's new promises. It's a step in the right direction. But hope begins to wane when Abraham dies without receiving all of the promises. He received a child, but not the land, not that ultimate blessing. Eventually, his descendants find themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. So God sends Moses. Maybe Moses is going to be the deliverer in order to lead them out. But the Hebrew people hadn't even gotten the taste of Egyptian wine off their breath before they begin to complain again. So now there's another repeat that happens. There's the golden calf incident and Korah's rebellion, the giving of the law, the inability to keep the law. Forty years of wandering in the desert, watching an entire generation have to die off. But God raised up a new generation with a new leader. His name's Joshua. Hope is coming back. Joshua's name means Jehovah saves. There's hope. So Joshua takes the reins of leadership and there's a new generation that now takes God at his word and they entered the promised land. Now they got the land. They entered the promised land. That's a step in the right direction. They come up to the battle of Jericho and it is epic. Walls come down. Enemies are defeated. Hope is restored. And just about the time hope is in their grasp, they come to Ai. And they get defeated by a tiny city because of sin in their midst. Fast forward in the storyline. Being in the land did not solve their problems. Stop right there. FYI, this is good. This might be why you're in the room today. Listen, listen, here it is. A new setting does not change a sin problem. When the problem was sin in the last place and somebody says, I just need a new start. I need a new place. I need a new relationship. If you walked into it, your sin walked with you into it. A new setting doesn't change a sin problem. So the book of Judges, it describes their sin in the land, their idolatry, their desire for an earthly king so that they could be like every other nation. God allows them to be taken captive again. Hope takes another hit They spend 70 years in Babylon, which ironically is the region of Mesopotamia, which is where Abraham began several hundred years in advance. So when you set out to accomplish something and several hundred years later you're back in the same place and you didn't accomplish it, hope takes another hit. So the question of the Hebrew people was constantly, when will the deliverer come? When will the deliverer come? When are the promises going to be revealed? When will hope be restored? And when God answers, he answers in a way that many people would not expect. He answers in the womb of a virgin. Now let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, but there will be no more gloom. Man, they were tired of some gloom. There'll be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse number two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land, the light will shine on them. 
You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They shall be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, the land will be filled with his glory. The people who walk in darkness, they'll see a great light. He will enlarge the nation of Israel, increase their gladness, break the yoke of slavery, lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. He will break the rod of the oppressors. He will do away with the items of war. The government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. And he will rule with fairness and justice on the throne of David. Isaiah chapter 9 is like hope on steroids. You can't read it knowing the storyline and not see there's hope. They're waiting for this one. They're on the edge of their seat. When's he coming? When's he coming? When's he coming? That was what was expected. So what was revealed? Were all of their hopes realized when Jesus was born? Yes and no. I say yes and no in the sense that their, their deliverance came in the form of a baby. Have you all ever tried to allow your baby to lead you somewhere? Has your baby ever gotten up in the middle of the night to make sure you're okay? Babies don't do that. It's all about them. Babies are not leading anybody. They're not helping anybody. They're not teaching anybody. They're not serving anybody. And yet the deliverer is coming in the form of a baby. Get, get this thought. Lying in the manger is the child of Eve who would crush the enemy of humanity. Listen to the way New Testament writers spoke of Jesus and the fulfillment of hope. Romans 15, 12, it says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 21, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus is the deliverer who is promised through the Old Testament. He's the hope of the Gentiles, the hope of nations. A frustrated hope preceded Messiah's arrival. The fulfillment of hope came when Christ was born. So why does that matter? On a practical level, when you wake up tomorrow, why does that matter for us? Because for the believer, hope is not a naive delusion. Sometimes when people talk about hope apart from Christ, my first thought is, 
That's just wishful thinking. In your mind, you're, you're hoping things will be different, but there's no reality. There's no substance behind what you're sharing. Listen to how the believer can have hope. We have hope from the past because God forgives sin. Praise God for that. We all sin. We all mess up. We all do things that we shouldn't do. And yet, because Jesus came, 1 John 1, 9 is now a reality. That is, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Did you know there is nothing you have done, there is nothing you are doing, there is nothing you will ever do in the future that God cannot forgive you of? There's hope in that. Here's the next one. We have hope in the present because God is with us. He's with us. When you go back and you put yourself in the position of Mary, or you put yourself in the position of, of Elizabeth whenever they received these initial conversations, these dreams, these visions, you can understand why they had some questions. So, for example, when the angel spoke to Mary about Christ's birth, she was confused because she's still a virgin. And now she's finding out she's going to have a child. Well, I don't know how all biology works, but it seems as though if you're a virgin, that's not a possibility yet. So then it goes on from there, and the angel begins to explain a little bit. The angel told her about Elizabeth, and Elizabeth having a child in her older years, even when she was barren. That child's name is John the Baptist. But listen to what it says, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, the very next verse. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Old age is not an obstacle with God. A barren womb is not an obstacle with God. Small beginnings are not an obstacle with God. For that matter, a tumultuous past, a, an addictive personality, problems in your family, issues at work, the diagnosis you receive from a doctor, there is nothing that is impossible with God. Because of who he is, regardless of what you're facing in the moment, there's hope. Did you know there has never been a single time that God wakes up wondering whether or not he's going to be able to accomplish what he needs to do for that day? There's, there's never been a, a time that he's been confused. There's never been a time he was taken by surprise. He is completely sovereign over the things that keep you awake at night. And he is completely sovereign over the things that if you even knew about it would crush your spirits. He's sovereign. He knows it all. He's in complete control. So when God says yes, you can bank on it. When God says no, you don't want it. And if God says wait, it's because he has a better plan at the right time to bring a greater blessing than you could have imagined. Just trust him. There's hope in the present because of him. The next one, we have hope for the future because God is sovereign, Jesus is coming, and heaven awaits. Now, some of you already know this, but I rarely watch football live. I need to share this with you. The confession is good for the soul. So I record the game. I wait to find out the outcome, and then I decide whether or not I want to watch the game. Now, I know I have issues 
People have been telling me that for years. I have a friend in Orlando, Florida. His name is Eston Colley. And he will text me along the way, and he will say, it's okay for you to watch. Or he will say, you probably need to find something else to do. I'm grateful for that. Now, let me tell you my reasoning. I I record and selectively watch games for very specific reasons. First, my teams rarely play at a level conducive to my blood pressure. (laughs) So there's a health reason behind this. Second, I am not spiritual enough to watch the game and not have evil thoughts about the other team. So it's a spiritual reason behind this. And number three, if my team loses, then I at least didn't lose the time that it would take to watch them lose. So there is an efficiency reason behind all of this. But, but here's my point. When you know how the game turns out, you can hang out during the bad times for a while. Are you smelling what we're stepping in yet? Okay? When you know how the story ends, you can walk through a lot of difficult times. Because you you understand that this is one moment, but it's not the end of the story. This is one difficult issue that I'm facing, but on the other side of this, I know he is on the throne. I know that he wins. I know he will be glorified. And because of that, I have hope in the future regardless of what I'm facing in the moment. So when you have that, you can go back to what the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians as having hope in your circumstances. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For momentary, light affliction. By the way, have you ever thought about who wrote that? If that was light affliction for the Apostle Paul, I'm almost embarrassed about some of the things I bring before God. Momentary, it's not going to last forever. Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. It's producing something for us. Over the years, I've had this statement that God's brought me back to again and again and again. If I allowed it, I'm using it. If I'm using it, you need it. And if you need it, you can be grateful for it. Sometimes you just got to stop and say, there's nothing that's come into my life that has not been sifted through the hands of a sovereign God. And if he's allowed it, there's a purpose. And our issue is we try to find out the purpose in the moments. And we struggle in the moments because we're like, I just need to understand why. I need to understand why. Did you know you can waste a lot of time trying to figure out why? Or either you can just stop and say, I don't understand, but God, I'm going to trust you anyway. Okay. By the way, since we don't have connect groups after this, there's other thoughts that are coming to mind, and nobody can say, i got to get to my connect group. No, you don't. No, you don't. Okay, so here's just a thought. It's coming to mind. It's one that I've used over the years. There's the, the passage that says, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here's a, a thought. 
Have you ever walked into your kitchen and just got you a big scoop of flour and started eating flour by itself? No, that's nasty. Don't, I, I, would, I wouldn't confess to that if I had to. Have you ever gone into your kitchen and got you a big old scoop of shortening or lard and just walk around and start eating that? Now, some of you are a little tougher than I am on this. I had an aunt who would do this. Have you ever just had buttermilk by itself and just drink it out the glass? Woo! Not me. Not me. Here's my point. All of those things by themselves taste nasty. But work them together in what you get. Somebody got pancakes. I, I didn't say anything about sugar in there. Hey, here's what you get. You get you a fluffy Martha White biscuit on the other side. Here's the, here's the issue. Here's the issue. The reason it's hard is we try to eat the issues one ingredient at a time. And we've not given God the opportunity to work it together. You know what it takes? It takes time and it takes trust. And we don't like either one of those. We want to do it because we like to control it. And we want it yesterday. But in this journey with God, it's going to take time. It's going to take trust. It's going to be that he has to keep working some things together. And on the other side, you have to know that you know that you know somehow he's still going to be glorified. Somehow it is ultimately for my good and for his glory. I got to trust him and let him keep working it together. So watch the way all of that leads into this final word. By the way, I don't have another 40 minutes on the final word. It's, you've already got the basics of this. In the book, Choose Joy, I love the tagline, because happiness isn't enough. Kay Warren defines joy like this. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation, end of quote. Did you, did you hear that final part? The determined choice to praise God in every situation. Did you know sometimes you have to worship your way into joy? Sometimes you just keep praising him, even when it seems like it's falling apart around you. Sometimes you have to block it out and say, the enemy is attacking, the lies are coming at me, but all I know is God is somehow using this. And when you lock in on that, here's what you do. You just say, God, I can't, but you can through me. God, if it's up to me, I'm going to stop right now. But I need you. I so desperately need you. I am going to sing right now before the victory because when the victory comes, I'll be able to enjoy it in a better way. You just keep worshiping him. Happiness is fleeting. It's temporary. We tend to think of life in the terms of hills and valleys, the ups and the downs. For just a moment, I want you to think of what life would be like if we thought about it more like train tracks. Every day we experience wonderful blessings that bring pleasure and contentment and beauty. Blessings like food, family, shelter, clothing, friendship, love, 
salvation. All of those are wonderful blessings that we experience every single day. That's one rail. Each day we experience painful circumstances, things that are difficult. They disappoint us. They hurt us. They fill us with sorrow. Things like evil and injustice, illness, mean people, discouragement. Think of that like the other rail. These two rails, joy and sorrow, are side by side over the course of your life. But if you ever stood in the middle of a train track and you looked down towards the horizon, somehow those two parallel tracks seemed to merge into one on the other side. Somewhere down the road, when we see Jesus face to face, the rails of joy and sorrow will merge together in a way that we could never understand. It's one of those things that as a follower of Christ, you have to just hold it in your hands with God and say, God, I don't understand how you're going to be glorified in this. I don't know how you're going to make this work out. I don't know why you're not answering as quickly as I would like. But somehow the joy and the sorrow are going to merge together because he works all things together for good. So we understand where joy fits into part of the story of Christ. For just a moment, though, I want you to see in Isaiah chapter 9, that same passage also spoke of joy. It wasn't all about hope. In fact, in verse number 3, it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. You have joy and rejoicing and gladness all in connection with Messiah's arrival. You'll find that same thing mentioned seven more times in chapters 12 as well as in chapter 35. Joy was expected. So what was revealed? Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel says to the shepherds, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Joy was expected. Joy was revealed. But it didn't end with the birth of Christ. You find that Jesus spoke of giving a fullness of joy, John 15. He described the kingdom of heaven through the lens of joy, Matthew chapter 13. He taught his followers that their sorrow would be turned to joy, John chapter 16. All through scripture you find that he's bringing joy in the midst of difficulty. So why does it matter on a practical level? Our joy is in direct proportion to our walk with Jesus. Show me a Christian who is walking in joy and I'll show you someone who is abiding in the presence of Christ. Oh, please hear me. I did not say that you cannot be a Christian and struggle with joy. But here's what I am going to say. When you're a believer and you're abiding in his presence and you're meditating upon his word and you're at home with him, it's different than a believer saying, I heard that already, but I got to figure this out. The issue is, are you abiding there? Joy is not struggling to be happy. It's the natural expression of God living through us. Galatians chapter 5, it gives the fruit of the Spirit. One of those is joy. It is what it looks like when the Spirit of God is living through us. Here's your next one. Our joy is not based on circumstances. 
man, we need to hear that. If you're waiting for that one day when everything is going to be great before you can be joyful, you're going to wait until eternity. Depending on the translation you use, the word happy and happiness are found around 30 times in the Bible. Joy and rejoicing are found over 300 times. The emphasis is on joy. Why would I say it's not based on circumstances? Listen to these verses and think about their context. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You can have joy in the context of trials. The book of Philippians itself is when it speaks of joy or rejoicing 16 times. It teaches us how to have contentment regardless of our circumstances. And yet it's written by a guy who is in prison when he's writing this. Jesus spoke of those who could rejoice when persecuted and even killed over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. The apostle Paul spoke of rejoicing and suffering, Romans chapter 5. Peter talked about rejoicing in our troubles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Joy is not contingent on our circumstances. Final part, our joy enables us to enjoy everything God provides. Our joy enables us to enjoy everything he provides. There is nothing that is more offensive than an entitlement. And there is nothing that is more beautiful than gratefulness. When joy is missing, we cannot enjoy all that he has already provided for us. So just think about these. I'm going to go quick in this. When a person lives with joy, they can rejoice with food. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7. Some of us were rejoicing a little bit too much over the last week or so. They can rejoice in the Lord, 1 Samuel 2. Rejoice in their salvation, Psalm 13. Rejoice in God's love, Psalm 31. Rejoice in God's word. Rejoice in God's promises. Rejoice in their spouse. Rejoice when truth is shared. Rejoice that their name is in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice in their sufferings. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice with others who rejoice. They can rejoice in truth. Rejoice in fellowship. Rejoice in trials. Right on down the line, when joy is there, you can enjoy what God has already provided. People who live with joy, they will praise God for what is already in their life. They don't hold back their joy until they get more, get different, or get what they wanted. They live Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's bring it all together. Over the past four weeks... We have dug into these four different words most often associated with Christmas. Those four words that we've gotten into are peace, love, hope, and joy. We have those as followers of Christ because Jesus came. But as you're preparing to go into a brand new year, as you're coming out of the holidays, as you're starting to get back into the routines a little bit. My prayer is that you don't leave those four words back in the holiday season of 2021. Those are four words we need every single day. We need peace every day, love every day, hope every day, joy every day. It should be as a follower of Christ that those are being expressed and lived through us regardless of the season that we happen to be in. Peace, love, hope, Enjoy. 
the line from the song, O Holy Night, it captures today's message in one phrase. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. We live in a weary world. Even as a follower of Christ, if you focus too much on what's happening in this world, it will strip the life out of you. You need joy. You need hope. You need Jesus. Right now, we're closing out last service of Sherwood 2021. And I think there might be still people in the room right now who they don't yet have that peace, that love, that hope, or that joy. They got church membership, but I've never experienced hope out of my church membership. They have good works, but when you're lying on your deathbed one day, you want the peace and the hope that you're right with God. They have a family history of being involved in spiritual things, but they don't have that settled conviction in their heart that if they were to die tonight, they would open their eyes in the presence of Christ. So for the final time in 2021, I'm going to share the gospel message again. Did you all know that in the last month, we've seen about 60 people make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Praise the Lord. Here's the simple gospel message. Humanity was created for relationship with God. That's why you're here. Our sin separated us from that relationship. I shared a little bit about that in this narrative of frustrated hope. Our sin separated us from that relationship. There was nothing that we could ever do to make things right ourselves. But Jesus did for us what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the grave three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who will turn from their sin, repent of their sin by placing faith in what he has done for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is he didn't say you got to climb Mount Everest in order to be right with God. He says you have to agree that you were wrong and turn from that sin by placing faith in Jesus. The good news is, is not that if you will go through and live a perfect life for the rest of your life, then God will accept you somewhere down the road. If that were the good news, we'd all still be in trouble. The good news is he's already done everything that's necessary for us to be right with him. Pressure's off. Oh, and by the way, when you know you were wrong, there's a lot of freedom that comes in verbalizing, I was wrong. But if you're still fighting that, if you're still saying, I've not sinned, I've been right, you're not ready for salvation yet. It requires an understanding of the sin that has separated us from a holy God. 
But when a person, they've come to the end of their rope, they're like, you don't have to convince me. I've lived it. I've seen the consequences. I know how much it's hurt my life. When a person is willing to say, I have sinned before a holy God, there's a holy God who says, let me give you the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, here it is, that person can confess their sin before God, place faith in what Jesus has done for them, And he redeems them. He saves them. He forgives their sin debt, past, present, and future. He gives them a new life and new hope and new gifting and new ability and new opportunity. They walk into tomorrow not with maybe life can be different. They walk into tomorrow with the assurance that God is on their side. That's different than religion. Religion will damn your soul to hell every time. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Don't hold on to religion as a get out of hell free card. Hold on to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. One day when we get to heaven, it's about Christ. It's Christ only in Christ alone. There is no way we can take any credit for what God has done. Will you give him your life today? For those of you who you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are saved and set aside by God, I'm going to ask you right now to begin praying. There's people around you that they are in a battle for their eternal soul right now. There are people around you. There are people who are watching online that maybe you've watched on each of these different messages so far and you keep saying, maybe some other time, maybe some other time, there is no guarantee that there is another time that might come. This might be the last time you hear that call from God. And if that's the case, don't turn away that still, small voice. If you want to know that you are right with God, if you want to know that your sin debt has been forgiven, then I'm going to lead the very simple prayer. This is between you and God. Here's what that prayer would be. God, I know that I have sinned. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And that he rose again on the third day. As best I know how, I place my faith in what Jesus has done for me. Will you save me? Will you forgive me? Will you give me eternal life? With head still bowed, eyes still closed, I want to rejoice with you. I want to celebrate with you. So wherever you might be, for just a moment, heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed, for just a moment, wherever you might be, if you just prayed with me for God to save you, would you lift your hand wherever you might be for just a moment? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may put them down. Thank you. You may put them down. God is still saving people. The heart of this church is not we want something from you, but we want something for you. We want you to experience what Jesus promised about the abundant life. We want you to know that when you close your eyes in death, you open your eyes in eternity in heaven. So for the final time of 2021, 
We're going to open up the altars. We're going to go through our time of invitation. There's going to be pastors that are going to be standing down at the end of each of the different rows. It might be today that you want to just talk to somebody. Maybe you want prayer. Maybe you've gone through some stuff and you're just like, I don't even know where to begin, but I feel like I need to tell somebody about it. Church should be a place where hurting people can come and find hope and help in the gospel. Come talk to one of these pastors. It might be that you need to take a step of obedience. Maybe the next step for you is moving forward in baptism. It might be that you've been praying about, is there a church home? And you've, you've sensed that this is where God is calling you to be. If that's the case, I want to encourage you, come talk to one of the pastors. Let them know what the next step is going to be. Everyone in this room has been in a place that we have ever, either been saved or need to be saved. The people in this room are going to rejoice and what decision it is that God is working into your heart. Just walk forward in obedience. I'm going to have a final prayer, and there's going to be one final song that is sung. And after I say amen, the altars will be open. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we recognize that unless you do the work, we're going to labor in vain to try to do it ourselves. God, we're completely dependent upon you, upon your spirit, upon your word. But oh God, we have great hope in the gospel. We have incredible hope that lives are being transformed. Marriages are being restored. Addictions are given way. Hope is coming into different people's hearts that they haven't had hope before. God, would you do a work that one day we'll turn back and just be amazed that you allowed us to even witness what you were up to. God, may your spirit move as the service ends. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?